Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of my Das Kapital Volume 1 reading guide slash overview. We are of course doing the second chapter this week of the book, which is on exchange. This is essentially Marx considering the social positions that commodities that are exchanged are placed within, so their relationship to their owners, etc., as opposed to the previous chapter where these factors are essentially abstracted. He's considering the owner of the commodity and their potential personal interests and what is required of them in order to sell their commodity on the market. So this chapter essentially abstracts a lot of the elements of the first chapter that we went over of the process of production or valorization of value and more relates to the realization stage of value. What I mean by valorization is the stage at which one labors and imbues a commodity with value, so production. But of course, this is not the end of the story for the commodity, because the commodity, first off, obviously, needs to realize this value in some way. It needs to be exchanged with other commodities. And most of volume one of capital in general deals with this valorization stage in a, in a more intimate depth. Volume two is more generally about the realization stage of value. Marx is talking about and studying the circulation of value within capitalism, you need to understand all elements of that circulation in order to really get one of them, even if valorization is the most important stage. So it's that's important to keep in mind as well, that even with understanding all of volume one of capital, it's only one element of the story, which is of course annoying because of how long Des Capital is and all of three of the volumes. But uh, anyways, something important to keep in mind. More notes on this chapter before we essentially begin is that it's sort of contested whether this chapter and the sort of later part of the first chapter are an attempt at actually outlining a history of money in its development or whether it's purely theoretical. And I'll talk about this more, I think, on the premium. But it is certainly not how money came about, anthropologically speaking, and it still has value as a theoretical study, so it essentially ought to be treated as sort of a, you know, thought experiment about the theoretical development of money that reveals something important about the commodity. Also importantly, uh, the next chapter on money is very long and arduous, but if you can get through these first three chapters and understand them, then like, the rest of the book is comparatively smooth sailing. If you're able to get these first three, you'll be able to get the rest of the book, essentially. All right, so moving on to the actual chapter itself, exchange. The first third or so of this chapter essentially involves Marx sketching out the relationship between commodity owners and the conditions that are required for them to exchange commodities. He interestingly does so with a relatively similar analysis to Hegel's account of commodities in philosophy of right. Both essentially have similar conditions required for commodity exchange to be possible on the market. In Hegel, this looks like owners, you know, owners of commodities must have possession of their commodities. That possession must be mutually recognized. The owners must have a free will to choose to exchange these commodities how they want. The owners must be alienated from the use of their commodities. And this relationship is generally expressed in a sort of contractual agreement, mainly through like a legal system that enshrines private property that says one person owns the commodity the other person owns the other commodity and commodity exchange must be two owners meeting each other at a sort of equal level and the fact that commodity exchange for marx 
is essentially a product of and is driven by an individual's free will to exchange a thing. You know, if you don't want to exchange something, you do not have to exchange something on the market. The very essential element of the market is an important point that should be noted for later in the book, specifically chapter six. Marx is of course not saying that there is not force involved in the circulation of commodities and value. As we will see later, capitalism is contingent upon recurring practices of exploitation and the deprivation of workers from any access to subsistence outside of doing wage labor. And I say, as we will see later, but statistically, I guess a majority of people listening to this, they see it in their lives. You can only force a worker to labor on means of production they don't own for a wage as a result of their continual domination. Importantly, the point that this is related to and the reason, one of the reasons that Marx uses the sort of Hegelian account of the market is that when only analyzing the markets, this exploitation and also the valorization process that is essential to capitalism and, you know, the extraction of surplus value is entirely invisible. So, you know, back to what I was talking about last week with this analogy of the reversal of Plato's cape, where the sunlit realm of the market appears as if it is purely the product of free association and free exchange, as Smith sees it, for instance, as well. But to really see what's going on, one must look into the dark depths of the factory and, you know, other instances of commodity production and exploitation and domination. But of course, this chapter is mainly talking about that moment of exchange. So we have to, as a result of analyzing only it, abstract that valorization. So for exchange to happen, the owners must freely take their commodities to market, of course. The commodity does not sell itself. In this chapter and the next chapter, we have the two general positions of buyer and seller. And Marx considers the nature of these economic and social positions and how they developed, why one would put themselves in a position to swap commodities or to buy commodities or to sell their commodities, etc. An important condition for taking your commodity to market is necessarily being alienated from it as a use value. So you don't treat it as valuable for personal consumption. You must see the commodity as a depository of exchange value. So being represented as valuable only insofar as it has a similar value to something you want to trade it for. But this creates an obvious contradiction, as I talked about and as highlighted in the first chapter. To be able to provide something of use to others, you must necessarily not see the thing you're providing as a use value. So before it can be a use value to the owner, it must be exchanged. But before it can be exchanged, it must be a use value. You know, it must be useful to others. It's important to emphasize that the peculiarity of the commodity, as I'm sort of mentioning and as, as Marx highlights, is something that is less obvious to us, I think, and far more obvious to those writing in Marx's time and before Marx. A good example of this that I can think of is in King John by Shakespeare, there's a soliloquy by Philip the Bastard that is, is essentially critiquing the commodity. This phenomenon, as it developed and became more relevant to people and their capacity to, you know, have subsistence, as commodity exchange became more important to people, as they were alienated from, let's say, making subsistence purely through themselves or through their family, through their community, the peculiarities of the commodity became a more relevant element of social and political commentary. It's not bizarre for us because we are so entrenched in commodity fetishism, essentially. We're so used to the commodity that to imagine a world in which it wasn't, you know, the king of everything, every element of one's ability to make subsistence, of their ability to even have access to wealth, 
is entirely enshrined within the commodity. So it doesn't seem peculiar to us, you know, something, something, fish, doesn't notice water, you know, etc. But Marx again will say that if you respond to this sort of point that he's making, that use values can reasonably be exchanged by themselves and do not require socially necessary labor time as a comparison, then you are of course doing a commodity fetishism. Specifically, one that is a product of how entrenched you are within the commodity. That these sort of abstract laws that guide the market at a very sort of submerged level are so blind to you that you are unable to recognize them. It's one of the reasons at least that Marx's analysis of capitalism is still so important and still so relevant. He sees a lot of these peculiar elements of the commodity form that are impossible for us to notice. Even pointing this out feels as if it is in a certain sense strange to us. That's the, the value I think in, in Marx as well as other thinkers who are analyzing capitalism just as it is sort of emerging as a system. The problem of how it's possible for commodities to be exchanged in the first place doesn't appear to us as nearly as much of a problem, it seems common sense, which it certainly did not to those in Marx's time, for instance. It certainly seemed like a very valid problem, or at least far more valid than most, I think, economists or even just people in general consider it now. But yeah, additionally, the necessary alienation a commodity owner has from the use value of their commodity, so, you know, they don't have anything to do with their use value, also creates the inevitable problem of one only knowing if their commodity has a use value directly when it's put up for exchange. This is something I noticed, for instance, because I of course have a Twitch stream, and I'm like not particularly fond of watching Twitch streams. M maybe this is a product of the fact that, you know, it's my job or whatever, it's a, it's a portion of my job. So, you know, I associate it with that. So I watch, you know, less Twitch streams than I used to, but I sort of don't get why you would watch like a four hour Twitch stream. And in that sense, I'm, I guess you could say alienated from the use value or utility of the Twitch stream, which maybe makes it harder for me to understand how it is a utility. A better way of explaining this, I think, that, you know, relates to most people's experiences who are Twitch streamers is like, you can think of like workers in an auto plant making a new brand of car and then finding out that that car is defunct and not sellable. You know, there's a fatal flaw in the car that makes it so that literally no one will buy it on the market. And you only find this out when the car is being put up for exchange. So whether your labor is actually useful, whether you can have a commodity out of your labor is only found at the moment of exchange. This is sort of an inexorability related to commodity production. That when you're selling, let's say your commodity to be able to meet subsistence, to buy foods, to feed your family, let's say, it is only discovered whether it actually can be converted to food when you try to sell it which is, in a lot of instances, obviously less than ideal. For Marx, commodities begin in the early barter stage of exchange, where the only metric of exchange that can possibly be used is different use value. But obviously, use values are not like things. They don't have the same quality, because use values are a product of nature. Unless you're trading a certain amount of one commodity for the same commodity, they don't have the same quality, as we talked about in the first chapter. So as commodities begin to become exchanged, their use value is necessarily abstracted as a metric. This also of course relates to the previous fact that I was talking about, about how if you produce a commodity for exchange, you are alienated from it as a use value. So it makes perfect sense that the free hand of the market, so to speak, ensures that value is the overall basis for exchange, 
Now, on the note of the free hand of the market or the invisible hand of the market, that is a concept that is, of course, taken from Smith. But essentially, what is meant here is that if a market functions uninterrupted, that the laws that govern that market will manifest and organize and determine exchange. Marx, of course, disagrees with Smith, thinks that the market is not rational, and is, of course, contingent on exploitation and domination. But an ideal functioning market would have the price of commodities be based directly on their value, you know, directly on the amount of socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity. But of course, after regular intervals of exchange, people eventually begin to produce things for the specific intention of selling them on the market for things they want or for you know general subsistence. This is really when value as a metric begins to be able to determine exchange reasonably accurately. So your labor takes on a necessary social character here, as I mentioned in the last chapter, where you only labor because your commodity will have value for the exchange of others. Because one is necessarily alienated from the use value of the commodity they produce, it is not the use value of the commodity that causes you to labor. You're necessarily comparing your own labor to that of the laborer who produces, you know, the food that you might eat, the clothes that you put on your back, etc. The only thing that you are concerned about is that your labor can enshrine within the commodities you produce more value comparatively than, let's say, the people who produce the food you eat or the clothes you put on your back, so you can trade them for more of those things. And obviously, whether it has more value is often based upon variables entirely alien to the direct use value of the commodity. Value is a social relationship based off of overall labor patterns in a larger society. So again, as I mentioned before, I'm sort of reiterating what I talked about last week. And a part of that is the fact that Marx is sort of going over a lot of the ideas he's already talked about, but in a, let's say, more practical sense, in a sense that the actual commodities being exchanged are less abstracted. Marx obviously highlights a problem within markets that are based upon direct barter, as we talked about before. This is beginning with commodity exchange related to barter, related to directly exchanging commodities. And this is the same problem he goes over in the last chapter in relation to the expanded form of value and its problems. I believe I went over this in the premium episode last week. Essentially, the problem is, in barter, that one has to use their own commodity as the universal equivalent to compare it to all other commodities. And this is very inefficient. Uh, so the solution is the money form or the general form of value. So essentially, out of convenience, commodity exchange develops into the form of money. And this is Marx's sort of very vague accounts of the origin of money. I can talk about its merits and its inaccuracies, I think, on the premium. But essentially what happens here is you labor for money and so do the people who make the clothes you wear on your back and the bread you eat, etc. Money becomes that equivalent that everyone compares their commodities to. So over time, all commodities see their value within a single equivalent, and that's money, as I talked about last week. In some societies, Marx says, early on, this is cattle. In some, it was, you know, wampa beads, etc. But upon the discovery of precious metals, particularly gold, Marx thinks it easily just inherently takes the form of money. This is because it has a universal value. Everyone views precious metals as precious, and it is easily divisible by weight. So the very specific value of a commodity is easily represented. And it's also very easy to take to market. One of the reasons why like cattle in some societies was used as money is because it's very mobile. 
And of course, everyone has a use for cattle. And that's essentially all I have for uh, this week's main episode. I'll talk more about sort of secondary information in relation to this episode on the premium. So to the degree in which Marx's analysis is like historical, um, etc. This one is relatively short, of course. Next one will be much longer. As we see, we've got into the money form of value and of exchange. And the next chapter on money is very long. And again, as long as you get to that chapter and understand it, and subsequently understand the first three chapters of Capital, then you, you'll be able to grapple with it. It's just this very early, difficult beginning point. And then after that, relatively speaking, smooth sailing. So I encourage you to push through, even if it is sort of very confusing. Hopefully, my episode for next week will be able to help you do so. Thank you to Please Don't Fire Us and Sierra for supporting me on Patreon. And if you want to see the rest of the discussion in relation to this, where I go, I guess, a bit more in depth into the chapter, that is available for $2 a month on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Thank you for tuning in, and I hope this helped with the book.